0: Good morning church, it's good to be with you this Lord's Day, and uh, I'm excited to discuss 1 Kings 18 with you this morning because I think we'll find it's another emphasis of the song that we just sang. We're going to sing about the, we're going to see God's deep love for us and what he does to show off his glory and magnificence. So let's, let's read the word of the Lord. Verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bowls be given to us, and let them choose one bowl for themselves, and cut it in pieces, laid on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. All the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given to them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, "O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey. Perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the offering time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. All the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar, In the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of, of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that all I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for inspiring this event and the retelling of it for our edification and sanctification. Lord, would you conform our lives to the truth in it for the purpose of bringing you glory Prune us this morning so that we may know you more, Lord. We love you. Amen. What is it about a contest and the ensuing clash of two rivals that grips our hearts, fixes our attention, and then stamps upon our memory like few things can? Later on... These events can even take on a larger than life persona in our mind, making us believe like everything hinged on that very moment. For example, I can say the phrase, Thrilla in Manila. And many minds will remember that epic duel between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier that went 14 rounds, only to leave Joe stung by the bee. Or, maybe we can think of Michael Jordan and the 90s Bulls winning six NBA championships. If only the Heat knew what that was like, right? Right? Maybe too soon. Too soon. However, along with all intense conflicts and contests, there's also the dramatic buildup that can almost seem physically tangible, it's so palpable, the pomp and circumstance the anxious and excited crowd, the rising anticipation before the hour, the smells, the sounds, all of the buildup. There is a sense in which the dramatic contest we see here of the gods that we read about in 1 Kings 18 is very similar. For three years, drought was plaguing the land. Yahweh's prophets seemed to be on the down and out while idolatry's hour was rising, the new king and queen seemed to be dominating in their powerful schemes. Yet, Yahweh decisively acts to prove that he is the true and living God worthy of all of our worship. Let me say that again. Yahweh decisively acts to prove that he is the only God worthy of all of our worship. Let's dive back into our passage and then see how he does it. To help you follow along this morning, I'm going to tackle this large portion of scripture in two different parts. The first part, for how I see it, Yahweh decisively acts and addresses the idolatry of his people. The latter part, he calls for action. He answers by fire and accomplishes his purposes. So there it is. If you get lost, there's the road map. You can kind of piece your way together through it. So the first thing we are met with in our passage is a rather odd interaction between Elijah and Ahab in verses 17 to 19. Ahab was currently the king of Israel who was introduced at the end of chapter 16 as a horrible and wicked king. He's the one married to the infamous Jezebel. And Elijah now meets him because Yahweh has decided to act. And this is our first point of the whole contest. This is no accident. It wasn't random, yet God called for this showdown. He orchestrated the whole event. He sold the tickets. He hired the sponsors. He was the host. He created the venue. That is because Yahweh decidedly acted to show off his glory. And he first acts by addressing the issue. But what exactly is the issue? And to whom is he addressing it? We are told in verse 1 of chapter 18, if you kind of look over on the other side of the page, where Yahweh tells Elijah, go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. The problem was rain. And the first person addressed to was the king. This was, we find out, not a season of no rain, not a month or two without but three long years without rain. Florida knows a lot about this. Three long years without rain. No, I'm being very facetious. Just That rainstorm last night is still dripping behind us in, in the foyer. But <laughs> sorry, <laughs> it's neither here nor there. The drought came about during Elijah's introduction and subsequent hiding from chapter 17, verse 1, where Elijah met with Ahab for the first time and told him, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, three years later, God is ready to bring about rain again. why? Why did God initiate a three-year drought and now act to remedy it? This drought was no mere accident or an inaugural move of a prophet to just establish himself forever. It comes right on the heels of Ahab's introduction, which paints a picture of his devout and rampant idolatry especially in marrying Jezebel, which multiplied it even more. We are to see that the drought is in some degree directly connected to idolatry in the land. It was God's signal of condemnation to the people of their rebellion against his covenant. This was a covenant curse. This is exactly what we are told God would do in Deuteronomy 28 when he and Israel established their covenant together. Listen to verse 15 of chapter 28 as he introduces the consequences for covenant infidelity. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Then in 22 to 24 of Deuteronomy 28, We find that drought and the withholding of rain are punishments for the purpose of waking the people up. They were intended to be markers for the people, like a check engine light on the dash of your car, which I'm currently ignoring mine. (laughs) Except this check engine light just blinked. Repent! Repent! You are acting in wicked idolatry and corruption against the covenant you made with God. This then gives us a better sense of why the interaction between Ahab and Elijah is at first glance weird. Ahab is furious at Elijah over the drought. He has been hunting him down, and now as they meet three years later, he calls them, calls Elijah, the troubler, of Israel, Now, immediately we can see this directed to the drought. Okay, three years, no rain, why are you troubling Israel? But as I read in one commentary, the word troubler in Hebrew suggests one who is consorting with dark supernatural forces in order to render harm. That is to say, Ahab looks at Elijah and says, Hey, quit your voodoo, man. Can you imagine the audacity? That idolatrous man calling Elijah the prophet? You're you're meddling in dark arts? I I mean, if that was me, maybe I'm more unsanctified than Elijah. I would have been furious. But then Elijah's comeback wasn't just playground smack talk where he wasn't quick on his feet and couldn't keep up and think of a better comeback than to just say, no, you are. Elijah was rebuking him for being the one to pollute the land with idolatry and rampant evil. That was the truth. And this is what it looked like in verse 18. Because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. So Ahab's compliance to Elijah's request of gathering the people in verse 19... I think has a subtle hint at Ahab thinking all the people will be on his side and hate Elijah. Regardless, though, he does what Elijah tells him and gathers the people at the mountain. So now it is time for the prophet to address another group of people, this time the guilty people. But notice the difference in the rebuke of the people compared to that of Ahab, their king. Verse 21. And Elijah came near to the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. What Elijah simply tells them in one word is repent. Quit playing these silly God games where you bounce back and forth between one or the other. The word limp is used for a bird that doesn't settle on one branch, but is constantly going back and forth between two and never finding rest. I think it is also hinting at the ritual cult rites that we see in verse 26, where the prophets of Baal are said to limp around the altar. There is a sense in which Elijah is telling them, how long will you be go on performing religious rituals for both teams when they are mutually incompatible? I mean, it's like trying to wear a Red Sox hat and a Yankees jersey at the same time. I've been in New England, and if you wore that in the crowd, everyone would hate you. It must be one or the other. And whatever you choose, pick the God who is real. Notice Elijah's conditions. If Yahweh is God, if Baal is God, the true God deserves complete and undivided devotion. Now, I want us to notice the two ingredients to bake this cake for the people to follow Yahweh. First, God has to pull back the veil from their sinful eyes through the prophet's rebuke. The people would have never recognized they were waffling between two different opinions if it weren't for God's initiation, intervention, and conviction of their sin. This is exactly what Paul rhetorically argues in Romans 1. And here in our passage, we see that phenomenon being played out. Second, they not only need proof, they need God to intervene and change their hearts in order to follow him. Notice how verse 21 continues after Elijah's plea. And the people did not answer him a word. That should should be very eerie to us. They did not answer him a word because they could not. They were incapable unto themselves of that conviction. They needed God to break in and turn their hearts back to himself. For then they could follow him. And thankfully, that is exactly what Elijah prays for and God intends to do. Listen to Elijah's prayer in verse 37 Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. That is to say, without God's intervention, the people will not know God or surrender their lives to Him. They will go limping between two different opinions otherwise. Before I get ahead of myself any further, we'll say more about that part of it when God accomplishes his purposes. But I, I want to pause for a second and reflect on those two ingredients for following God that I just put forth. If we are honest, these two ingredients are always essential for salvation not just for Israel. We were like Israel and needed our sinful eyes opened by God's rebuke. We didn't wake up one day and realize our need for God. He had to reveal that to us in the word of the gospel. Furthermore, he had to give us a new heart. He had to turn our hearts to him and give us faith in order to exercise and repent. And why is this important? Why is that important? Because this should foster in us a gravity towards God's grace and simultaneous humility when we preach the gospel to the lost and dying world. It should inform our prayers and give us hope when we pray for our loved ones who might be waffling between God and the world and give us great hope that What he has done for us, he can do for them. We weren't better than anyone else. We didn't have fertile soil unto ourselves to hear the gospel. God had to produce that in us. Ian Hamilton, in his booklet booklet titled Experiential Calvinism, says this. When you encounter God as he is, The revelation shatters all your fond imagined notions about yourself and humbles you to the dust. It cannot be otherwise. This is fruitful spiritual soil. No spiritual Christ-like grace can flourish in any life that has not been and is not being humbled by sin. Amen. Now, God sets the stage in verses 22 to 24 for how the showdown is going to take place. He addressed the people's idolatry, and now he will accompany his rebuke with action and leave them no excuse but to honor him as the only God worthy of worship. The people agreed to Elijah's word about the competition between Yahweh and Baal because it is straightforward, without any mysterious loopholes or confusion. Whoever produces fire, whether Baal or Yahweh, is the one and only God. Do honor and allegiance. Team Baal goes first. Verses 25 to 29, we see their sorry attempt at producing fire and summoning their God to answer. There's an intentional refrain in these verses. Verses 26 and 29 hint on them. There was no voice and no one answered. And then in 29, it's amplified. No one paid attention. Their attempts were fruitless, even as they got more ecstatic and euphoric. During the time where the prophets of Baal are trying their best to make something happen and heard by their imaginary God, Elijah has his famous moment of mocking them. This is every boy's little dream. I mean, God's prophet is using toilet humor. Kids, it's still not okay. Just to clarify, it's not okay. But, though it's not okay for our children, I don't believe it also gives us license either to use mockery with the world. Here's what I mean. We are not to understand this as Elijah just got bored after a few hours and thought he would taunt the prophets for how ridiculous they were. This was God mocking Baal and all idolatry through his prophet. There is a pattern of this through the prophets that God uses to prove a point always. And God has every right To mock idolatry, we do not. We see something of this similar pattern and nature in Psalm 2 where the kings and rulers set themselves against the Lord and his anointed and it says he laughs at them and holds them in derision or he mocks them. God's point through Elijah is for the people to see the futility in idols And that they are nothing. Not only are the words humorous, but the effect on the prophets of Baal is equally funny. The irony is that the mockery led them to trying harder. It's as if they kind of heard Elijah and they were like, hey, that's a bright idea. We should try harder. Maybe he is sleeping. And they go into euphoric frenzy. And what we need to take away from this is that religious sentiment, hyper-ecstatic devotion, cannot nor will not save anyone. I'm sure the prophets of Baal were completely devoted. I mean, Scripture tells us they, they were quite devoted. It's evident. But... It cannot save. We live in a culture right now that wants to tell us it's all about the heart. And, And there is an element of truth to that, to be sure. But sincerity is no replacement for substance and the proper object of our faith and affection. I mean, that's really what this passage is all about. There is a way to follow Yahweh. Their sincerity, like in all idolatry, produces nothing because they were worshiping a fiction. The author makes this painstakingly clear when he emphasizes that nothing happened. After six or more hours of Team Bale's turn at trying to produce fire, Elijah is now granted his turn and prepares the sacrifice for Yahweh to answer. In verses 30 to 35, he prepares the sacrifice. Elijah not only prepares it, but he takes this moment to teach the people about proper worship to the Lord as he builds the altar in accordance with the instructions of Exodus 20. Much of what he does with the 12 stones and then the water being poured on 12 times in some way also emulates Moses from Exodus 24 pointing towards covenant renewal with also a hint and focus towards unity of all God's people. Elijah was not, was not only a true prophet for rebuking the people, but that he taught them proper worship according to God's revelation. All of this being done to remind them of their ancestral heritage and God's faithfulness to his people throughout the ages. Then the moment of truth came. Elijah starts to pray. And you can almost imagine at this point what's swirling around the people's minds. Like, ah, oh, great. Is this going to be another six hours of waiting here? Is Elijah going to start, you know, like doing crazy things? Let's now look to Elijah's prayer in verse 36. Oh Lord, Elijah constantly used the covenant name of God revealed in Exodus, intentionally. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, the God who delivered out of Egypt, is in fact the same God who swore a promise with Abraham that was established with his sons, Isaac and Israel. No doubt using Israel instead of Jacob to intentionally remind the people there of all God's unified people. They were to be unified with Judah. Elijah continues, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. May we not forget This was the whole reason for the entire setup. The entire meeting and face off was orchestrated for this whole purpose that they know you are God in Israel, which is why the same thing is nearly again expressed in verse 37. Then Elijah quickly prays for himself and his ministry, and that I am your servant. And then I've done all these things by your word. That is to say, he is no troubler of Israel for the drought. This whole setup was because Elijah had been ordained by God and told to do so. The mocking, the altar building and worship, the prayer confronting Ahab, Ahab's idolatry and erroneous marriage. All of it was true. Because it came from God, not Elijah's whims and own desires. Then there's an honest prophetic plea to the Lord and reiteration of the main point in verse 37. Answer me, O Yahweh. Answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God. The last thing for which Elijah prays brings it all together and that you have turned their hearts back. What Elijah wants for this whole showdown is that God gets the glory he deserves. If people were converted that day, it was only because God would turn their hearts back to himself. It wasn't hyper ecstatic, Emotional moments. It wasn't a mountaintop experience. Pun intended. It wasn't because they chose it for themselves. It was because they had their hearts turned back by God himself. And then as Elijah draws his prayer to a close, part of me wonders how long this happened. Was it? Did he say it? You know, something to the equivalent of what we say, "Amen," and then just boom. Did it take one, two, three seconds? We don't, we don't know, but I wonder, because then fire falls from heaven and incinerates the whole entire thing—the bowl, the wood, the stones, even the dust and the water. Everything burned to a pole. There was no doubt that Yahweh was God. Now, I want to think about that again. I mean, clear skies for three years. No cloud, no rain, no nothing. And then all of a sudden, after three years, a pillar of fire drops out of heaven. This wasn't accidental lightning. He was victorious because he decisively acted To prove that he is the true and living God worthy of worship. This was an undeniable miracle and witness of Yahweh in front of them. Watch what happens immediately following too. Remember Elijah's prayer and hoping to turn the hearts of the people back? God's victory is so intense that the people immediately exclaim, Yahweh, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. Then there's an even further expression of their hearts being turned back in compliance with His law. Verse 40 strikes, you know, kind of at our modern, maybe even New Testament sensibilities as rather odd or even off-putting. But the law demanded In Deuteronomy 13, that those prophets be put to death who led the people into idolatry. And the prophets of Baal had to die because Yahweh was God. Now the people honor him by starting to comply with his word and they obey Elijah and they start to follow him. These last two verses our part one of this rev- resolution after this intense conflict. And then part two is not a part of our pericope this morning, but then God brings rain. It is only after God reveals himself to the people, purges idolatry from the ra- land, that then the covenant blessing flows. As I... As I started studying this story this week and kept thinking about it over and over, I couldn't help but think of the next time we hear about Elijah. The leadership was again failing the people so badly, in fact, that he calls them a brood of vipers. The people's hearts were also starting to stray from Yahweh. So he called them to repentance and preparation for the kingdom coming at hand. Then one day he looked up and he saw a man coming towards him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that Lamb of God, prepared like a sacrifice, took wood upon his back up a mountain called Calvary. And it was there on that day The fire of God's judgment was poured out upon his son so that the judgment was exhausted. Like on Mount Carmel, it didn't fall on any guilty party that day. It fell on an innocent lamb who bore all of our sin. Brothers and sisters, God decisively acts. To prove that he is the true and living God. Worthy of all of our worship. And so like Elijah asked and called the people to. Almost 3,000 years ago now. If you are waffling right now. I call you to do one thing. Repent and follow him. Because he is worthy of our worship. Let's pray. God, we thank you for that decisive day where you have purged us of our sin and you have caused our hearts to be turned back to you. Lord, may we never forget or cheapen your grace. This was a tremendous sacrifice. And Lord, we are grateful to you because you are sovereign and because you are good. And because you care about your name that you have put in your covenant and you have marked us out as your people. Lord, I pray that we would follow you fully devoted like Elijah calls the people to. May we not go limping between two opinions as if there was any other thing to be devoted to. Help our hearts. Lord, help us fix our affection upon you. Do the work that you have always done, which is being sovereign and glorious over all. Lord, we love you. Amen.